The opinions in this program are not necessarily shared by the Cortez Radio Board of Directors or staff. You're listening to Cortez Community Radio with CKTZ 89.5. This is Max Tyson for Cortez Currents, and today we're talking about shellfish. The Cortez community is in various levels of emergency mode. The climate emergency has moved many people to increase their local self-reliance. And then the COVID-19 pandemic came along with its own challenges to the established modern food systems. Bacon is under threat. Many people who previously had gardens are expanding them. People who haven't had gardens before are starting one up. But what about the other food groups? What about the critical brain-building inflammation-fighting fats and muscle-building protein? That's where aquaculture comes in. Okay, who's that? Okay, my name is Eric Lyon, and I do grow oysters. Our company is Rising Tide Shellfish. Eric has only been in the industry for about a decade, but he makes up for it with a very keen approach. They say it takes 20 years to be accepted as an islander, right? But I've found that they'll kind of fast-track you if you spend a lot of time kneeling in clam mud. I mean, I don't know how many times I've been standing in the lineup at Bertha's after a long day of work in the beach, and some old lady grabs me by the arm and just has a big whiff of me and says, Yeah, you smell like the olden days, right? Eric's here to tell us about one possible solution to our food security concerns. When you have something that's as obvious as taking seawater and turning it into high-value food without any other inputs, then it sort of like behooves us to get a little bit serious about it, right? We have these unbelievable strong currents surging in and out of these protected bays with deep water and then um, intertidal shelves all over the place. You know, if ever there was a place in the world that you would select to be like, wow, we could really produce a lot of shellfish there, it would be right here. Eric once told me that we could feed the whole world by just growing shellfish in Tikarnarm, which juts into West Redonda from the Lewis Channel. And, yeah, the potential is vast. Like, I, that was probably not quite accurate that we could feed the whole world with oysters grown in Tikarnarm. But definitely we're underproducing here compared to our potential. Oysters are a good food. They're full of healthy fats, protein, vitamins, and minerals, so the case is easy to make that we should eat them. You know, it's good food. But there are also some ecological benefits to growing oysters. Just from the biological standpoint, yeah. I don't think you could ever make the claim that growing shellfish is in any way anything but a benefit to the environment. From the artificial sort of hanging reefs that you create with string culture of oysters to, you know, even just uh, oysters growing on the beach naturally reefing up creates habitat for all the little rockweed gunnels and all sorts of vertebrates and invertebrates, you know, like it's a huge benefit to everybody. Compare the carbon footprint of you know, industrial feedlots and stuff, the same amount of energy, how much shellfish you could produce is just like, there's no comparison, right? Shellfish farming has lots of other benefits that I'm happy to chat about. And who's that? My name is uh, Tim Green. I'm a Canada Research Chair in Shellfish uh, Health and Genomics at Vancouver Island University. Sure, Dr. Green, go ahead. The farms often create a lot of sort of 3D structure, um, which is great as nursery habitats for, for fish. 
another animal, so you know, when we pull up a trade of oysters, it's amazing the amount of other invertebrates and marine life that's associated with our oysters. Uh, they regularly filter the water, so that that's really beneficial for capturing and, and removing a lot of the nitrogen uh, that's going into the water. And as you remove that, remove those particles and, and phytoplankton, you're allowing the light to suddenly penetrate deeper into the water, which is promoting uh, things like seagrass meadows uh, around the farms. And, and you know, we know that seagrass meadows are, are really, really important, or eelgrass meadows are really important for, for many, you know, fish species as well. So, you know, there's lots and lots of benefits of actually having a farm. Some of those benefits are a little indirect. Well, one of the things I really, really think is important is that, you know, if you didn't have shellfish farms there, there wouldn't be someone who is 100% reliant on clean, pristine water. So, you know, they really are um, the caretakers of our marine environment. And they're going to be the first ones who notice if something starts to go wrong and they're going to be the first people jumping up and down saying, hey, we need to fix it. So I think that's a really important part of, of the environment piece. Oyster farmers are stewards of the water, but it's complicated. Us sustainable shellfish producers have the moral high ground right up until the point that we take those oysters and pack them in a styrofoam cooler with a gel pack and fly them to Vietnam. Oyster farmers are, however, observers of nature. The oyster sort of has a special spot in terms of its toughness and resilience because it, it's eked out a way of surviving in the intertidal zone. And it's able to cope with these extremes unlike any other animal I know of. So it can close up in its shell on a hot day in the middle of the summer when the beach is like 45 degrees on like a windless midsummer day, just baking like a reflective lens, you know. On a big tide, the water might be out for five hours or more even, right? The oysters just lay in there, boiled in its own shell, just waiting for that cool water to come back. And then it can lay out there in minus 10 degrees in the middle of the night in December for weeks on end, you know, just waiting for that warm seawater to come back in at the end of each tide, right? And then it can deal with these huge fluctuations in salinity. You know, they can live in these estuary type places, let alone um, rainwater events and stuff like that, right? And then it can go months in the winter just living off of its own reserves, just waiting for the first plankton bloom to really gorge itself and start putting on weight again. And it does that all and then still manages to produce several million spawn every summer or whatever, right? So this animal is like totally adapted to dealing with really tough environmental changes, right? But it has its sort of tipping point. You know, you can only push it so far before it's just not a viable existence anymore. They can't cope with everything and still run their immune system if their oxygen demands are too high, for instance. They've been feeding like crazy. It's summertime. They're happy. They're getting all this nonstop food like a continuous buffet laying in a 
tray there suspended underneath the raft, and they, they need a lot of oxygen to metabolize all of that and run their immune system. All of a sudden, the water gets a little bit warmer than they like, but they've got to keep metabolizing to get the oxygen in to keep everything running, and the immune system goes out the window. Well, it gets a little bit warmer, and now all of a sudden you've got all these bacteria in the water surrounding them. They're surrounded by their own waste and everything, and they just don't stand a chance. They, they're compromised at that point. They start dropping off like crazy, right? And climate change is pushing those limitations a little bit at a time, all the time, right? You know, like we, we still have the ability here to produce a lot of shellfish, but that has diminished already in a huge way in the Strait of Georgia to where they, they've considered it a, a situation of crisis in the shellfish industry down in Bain Sound where they, they just can't get them to survive to market size down there anymore. Dr. Green studies how climate change is impacting oysters. And so, obviously, uh, you know, our, our climate is, is rapidly changing. Certainly, one of the most pronounced places is probably here on Vancouver Island. Most people have heard of the blob, that very warm part of the ocean that's reappearing just off Vancouver Island and was associated with things like uh, sea star wasting disease. Those very intense marine heat waves also seem to correlate with oyster mortalities. And then another thing that's happening is, you know, here there doesn't seem to be a lot of buffering capacity in our ocean for absorbing all the extra CO2. And so where, you know, a lot of ocean acidification is occurring. So for a large part of the year, uh, here in Bain Sam where we work, the, the water is so acidic that it'll actually dissolve away the larval shell of, of oysters. So that's, you know, makes it a lot harder for them to, to grow bigger and, be, and remain healthy. Here's Eric Lyon again. From an oceanographic standpoint, things are changing in the Salish Sea. The Strait of Georgia is essentially like a larger version of the gorge, if you can imagine. The Gorge Harbor, Cortez Island. It's an enclosed waterway with a raised sill. So you have this basin, thousands of feet deep in places, and it's fed to the north by relatively small channels that are relatively shallow even in places, and to the south by the larger one, the Fuca Strait, which allows colder Pacific water in when times of tide are strong, which comes in through the south there, and it subducts underneath the resident water in the Strait of Georgia, right? And that's what creates this upwelling effect that turns over the water basically and drives more nutrients in and oxygen and everything else it's what gives the water life right you got the sun shining in there creating all the plankton blooms and everything but it's really it's it's like the health of the water relies on this subduction of colder water coming up coming in underneath and, and driving the what's essentially the stale water up and circulating it right and You'll remember these events like the blob. People have been freaking out about the fact that, for instance, we had a few winters there. I can't remember the years exactly where we didn't really have a lot of storms and it didn't break up the surface water out in the Pacific that much. The Gulf of Alaska was relatively calm for a couple of years, you know. And that all fed the sort of positive feedback loop of warmer water and these massive plankton blooms that 
ate up all the oxygen and, and created deoxygenated water and also harmful algal blooms, right? Um, so all of that stuff is kind of like a sign of, you know, the effects of global warming. As the water out there in the Pacific inches its way higher in temperature by tiny fractions, you get more and more events like that, right? And what's scary for a place like where we live is as that water on the outside gets on average a little bit warmer and lower in quality of all these things that we think are desirable, like dissolved oxygen and stuff, the colder the water is, the more dissolved oxygen it can have in it, right? And the more churned up it is, the better it is for that kind of thing. So as that water on the outside loses quality and, and especially loses the ability to subduct in through the Juan de Fuca, we actually lose the mechanism by which our very, very vital exchange of water happens in the Strait of Georgia. So that's why we're seeing, for instance, oyster mortality events becoming more and more common, especially in the center strait around Baines Sound, where the water would be meeting from the north and the south. Well, by the time it gets there, it's, it's not doing what it used to do, which is subduct underneath all that resident water and drive it up and drive it out and, and give it that exchange that it wants. And as we see a diminishment in that sort of cycle, we're going to lose biodiversity because of it. And, and so that's, that's the scary part of climate change from the standpoint of a shellfish producer or any living person, for that matter, that lives on the shores of the Salish Sea, right? Because the actual mechanism by which the water lives and creates that life is being diminished over time. Global average atmospheric temperatures have risen nearly one degree Celsius already and average ocean temperatures have risen about half that, 0.5 degrees Celsius. For a non-scientist, it can be hard to imagine how a seemingly small shift in the average can have such a big impact. We know uh, it's, a, it's a very small incremental increase on the average seawater temperature here in Bain Sound. So it goes up by 0.02 degrees every year. But it's the frequency of these warm water events, that is what really scares me. So if you go back, uh, well, at the entrance of, of Bain Sound, there's a, a lighthouse um, called Chrome Island, and they've been collecting uh, seawater temperature daily since the 1960s. At the beginning of that temperature record, marine heat waves were rare. We now see them four, five, six times a year, and it's these really warm, intense events that's getting, you know, the, the frequency that's getting driven by climate change is, is the bit that scares me. So it's not so much this small incremental change over year, it's the, it's the how rapidly these, these, uh, impacts like, you know, atmospheric heat, heat waves that we have and that are often associated with, you know, high mortality of humans, um, you know, and our elderly and more susceptible. Uh, populations. We also see that in the marine environment that we're having these marine heat waves, and that's when we have have mortality events of of our marine animals. 
yeah, some days are getting far colder than normal and other days are getting way higher. So it's, it's that fluctuation in the peaks that to me is the, is the fear. So, um, and you, you see that with storm events, you see that with atmospheric, uh, heat waves and you, know, you see this, uh, with marine heat waves as well. So. Yeah, most people it hasn't really affected them, but you'll you'll find us oyster farmers out there with tears in our eyes shoveling rotten heaps of empty shell over the side. You know, the summer of 2018 was particularly impactful for me. I felt like, you know, the uh, the failed farmer kneeling in the dusty field, you know, going, why me, right? As you're, you know, I'm ruined. What, what can I do about this? It's hopeless. This is a desperate situation, you know, and, and I've struggled with, you know, it crippling my, uh, positive outlook on things because of, having to deal with crop losses, you know, due to climate change. And I'm just sort of basically starting out compared to some people. There's there's farmers I know who have been at it for decades, making a good living, doing what they think are the best practices. And particularly in 2018, it was just devastating. And these people, I think, have found that psychologically like really difficult to deal with, you know, and on a cerebral level, we all understand, oh, the climate change is affecting this and that and the other thing. But when you've invested your whole life in building something and working something and, and put it all on the line and you see that collapsing right in your very hands in a rotten, stinking mass of mortality, it definitely, you know, impacts you in, in a really powerful way. So shellfish aquaculture has all this potential, and it's also facing some serious threats. But Dr. Green is working on it. You're looking at the Pacific Oyster and looking at what potential does it have uh, for adaption. And so... You know, for ocean acidification, unfortunately, it, it's it's quite low, and you know, so that that to me is quite concerning. There are animals within the population that that seem to be able to produce larvae that can survive. Our next step that we're taking is seeing well, how do those larvae that are good at surviving OA tolerate some of the other stresses that we know are changing? Because that that to me is the big fear: is you know, you might be able to survive one of these stresses, but can you survive all? We have, a, a, I guess, a selective breeding program where we produce lots of different families that are all uh, related, you know, so they're cousins and half-brothers and sisters, and then we challenge the progeny of each of these families uh, to stresses and we try to work out the, you know, what would I say, the, the genetic potential. So there's hope that oysters can adapt to climate change, but there are other challenges to the industry. I asked Eric about the challenges from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been fairly devastating to a lot of seafood production. You know, like the market internationally for shellfish flesh up until this event was like really strong. Orders just couldn't be filled. Any processor of, of shellfish seafood you talk to and 
British Columbia was likely to tell you the same thing. Just send as much as you can. We can get rid of all of it. We can't fill orders, you know. And from the gooey duck to the humble oyster, it was like the worldwide demand for it is like platinum, right? And so I had hoped that as a food producer, when this whole thing started to happen, that our industry would be more resilient than it turned out to be. And what happened was in January, we started to see, okay, well, this is a full-blown outbreak. They're closing uh, at least um, Hubei province in China. And, and that quickly turned into, by February, there was no exports to most Asian countries, February, March, you know. And, um, and so, so the, the markets are varied, right? I sell shellfish to several different processors and they all have their own sort of niche markets right and for instance i sell oysters to a processor down in bain sound area and their big market happens to be uh, vietnam most of the larger oysters that i harvest from wild sites and um, like large beach oysters naturals they all literally get flown straight to ho chi minh city and then distributed from there. And so that market dried up. And I thought, okay, well, that's fine. I've I've diversified my small company. We grow oysters from seed. And we're feeling pretty good about that because we'd finally sort of eked into the uh, cocktail size market for oysters. And we're producing a lot of these beautiful tumbled little oysters that aren't much bigger than like two inches, right? And, and that market went kaput overnight when they shut the restaurants down. So the coronavirus thing totally crippled the shellfish business. The pandemic has affected the land meat industry extensively. Mary Robinson is president of the Canadian Federation of Agriculture. The CBC reports her as saying, quote, Agriculture, the foundation of our overall food supply, is at this very moment in time at a tipping point. If we do not, as a nation address the rising challenges immediately, Canadian consumers could see a decrease in the amount and variety of food at their local grocery stores, as well as higher prices in the months ahead. We face the possibility that crops will rot in the fields, as is now happening in other countries. End quote. She's referring to labor shortages and uncertainty in the market. The CBC reports that Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bebeau says, quote, The government of Canada is aware that some meat processing plants are reducing slaughter capacity or temporarily closing due to impacts of COVID-19, which is causing a backup of live animals on farms across the country, end quote. The backlog is costing farmers a lot of money. Animals who are ready to be slaughtered still need to eat. We don't have that problem with oysters. We take our oysters, we put them on the beach, they just sit there, slowly getting bigger. And we don't have this rotting in the field crop phenomenon that plagues a lot of other food producers, right? They will get bigger over time, yes, especially since they're not being eaten. They will either all die this summer, <laughs> right before they can be sold, or they will um, survive and just slowly get bigger and bigger and bigger. As citizens, we can do our part by investing in and eating local sustainably produced shellfish. Canadians aren't in the habit of eating shellfish at home, but this could change. 
Bacon wasn't a breakfast food until a marketing agency got doctors to promote it. Avocados, or alligator pears as they used to be called, weren't popular until football stars and pop stars made it so. I feed my family oysters, you know, and, and we don't eat them all the time because, you know, I spend pretty well every waking minute dealing with oysters. So you don't always want to have them for breakfast. <laughs> but sure, I eat them for breakfast sometimes. If you're listening to this and you are craving some avocados and you can't get them, come see me. I'll give you some oysters instead. Maybe you think shucking oysters is dangerous. Well, a plastic surgeon in London was repairing the hands of so many people who cut themselves while slicing avocados that his staff called the injury avocado hand. So let's get involved. Tell your friends. Oysters can sequester carbon. The animal, the oyster sequesters carbon. Whether or not a shellfish farm is a net gain or loss of carbon, I have no idea. I'm assuming by the time we um, uh, use outboard motors, truck oysters to market, even flying oysters to market, that they're probably um, the advantages are lost. And working with oysters could save other creatures from extinction. There are going to be other bivalve species that are at risk, and hopefully by focusing on the Pacific oyster, we're going to develop tools and the understanding that we can then potentially uh, help some of the other species along, along the way as well. Oysters are high in zinc, and zinc shortens the duration of the common cold. And according to one Dr. Rob, the possibility that zinc may be of some benefit in coronavirus infection cannot be ruled out. And if that's not enough, they have other benefits. When you're an oyster farmer, you get to be part of the most honored tradition of human beings in the history of human beings, which is getting up and going out and doing whatever the heck it takes to survive, right? Whether that means getting up at four o'clock in the morning and rowing to the beach on Hernando and filling your cargo nets with shock oysters or, you know, whatever else, going out and digging a feed of clams for you and your family. It's fun. There's adventure in it, even. When you're living with the cycle of the tides and everything else and, you know, the weather, you're definitely tuned into what's happening out there sort of fixated on the oysters and the clams and stuff but all these other amazing creatures are your companions day to day and i'm talking like benthic invertebrates humpback whales all of it you know if you're a biology nerd like me and you're just nuts for animals it's awesome and when we're out there harvesting and growing shellfish we can learn and grow too. What you can do is you can cultivate a culture of respect for wild things, wild spaces, and good food. I mean, every site is different, right? And that's part of the magic of shellfish is you sort of discover over time these sort of beautiful little places that do different things, you know. Each, each shellfish growing site has something different to offer so you know really fantastic clam beaches are up there with sacred ground in my opinion you know you know you you get to these places that have been all cleared of cobble and it's just pure pea gravel and the clams are just neck and neck in there and it's just like 
a beautiful thing to behold, you know, and that really wants to be treated with respect. And that's it for today. Thanks so much to Eric Lyon and Dr. Tim Green for working to increase food security on the coast and for telling us about it. You've been listening to 89.5 FM CKTZ Cortez Community Radio. This has been Max Tyson for Cortez Currents. This program was funded by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative.